The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, are the private museums of billionaires and corporations undermining our public cultural institutions? I talked to Georgina Adam about her new book, The Rise and Rise of the Private Art Museum. Also this week, Nancy Kenny explores a huge new museum that's just opened in Los Angeles, the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. And in this week's Work of the Week, as the Rijksmuseum opens Remember Me, an extraordinary exhibition of Renaissance portraits, Matthias Ubel, the show's curator, tells me about a pair of portraits by Piero di Cosimo. Before all that, the current series of our sister podcast, A Brush With, continues, so do check out the latest in-depth artist interview, A Brush With, Sarah Z. Subscribe wherever you're listening now to hear that and to explore the back catalogue of more than 25 conversations. Now, in May this year, the Bourse du Commerce, housing the collection of the luxury goods magnate François Pinot, opened in Paris, one of the most spectacular examples of the burgeoning phenomenon of private museums. But what does the growth of museums featuring the art collections of billionaires like Pinot and Bernard Arnault and corporations mean for publicly funded museums and galleries? Georgina Adam, an editor-at-large at the art newspaper, has just written a new book, The Rise and Rise of the Private Art Museum, so I spoke to her about it. Georgina, what is a private museum? Well, of course, private museums have existed almost since museums started, in fact, before, since collections of royalty and very, very rich collectors were sometimes open to the public, sometimes by appointment. But the actual private museum as we think about it today is really, to a large extent, a phenomenon of the 21st century. Some of the older 19th century private collections generally became public one way or another. They could have been donated or they could have been nationalised in a few cases. So today in the book that I write, I've concentrated on museums of contemporary and modern art and extraordinarily 70% of those have been created this century. It really is a phenomenon of the 21st century. Can you tell us why that's the case? I think it's a number of elements. I think probably the most important is the nature of private collectors today and the way they've made their money. If you go back even a generation or two generations ago, money tended to be more inherited. So people came from a collecting background, probably they came from money. So they knew about collecting. They probably already inherited art. But what we're seeing today, and particularly since this is a worldwide phenomenon, we're seeing wealth that's much more self-made than it was in the past. And with self-made wealth, there's not that tradition of collecting. Quite a few of the collectors I interviewed said that their family had no interest in art or didn't have the means to collect art. It just wasn't part of their world or their possibilities. And of course, if wealth is self-made, this leads on to what you want to do with that wealth and how you want to show it off, which is also part of private museums, as well as giving back to the community, which is also something that a lot of private museum owners talked about. 
It's interesting, isn't it, that? Because the giving back of that wealth to the community in the past might have been giving a collection to a museum so that the museum could show it to the public. But now it seems that there are more and more wealthy people, wealthy art collectors, who want to own that relationship to a degree. Yes, it's really interesting. A few years back, um, Christian Friedland, who is a Canadian economist, published a book about billionaires. And one of the things that she noted was that billionaires or extremely rich people tend to be less rooted in a single community. They tend to live in more than one place. And I think if you go back in history to the 19th century, when people gave to a local museum, it's because they were local. And so that was their community, and they worked with that. Now, very rich people tend to be less rooted in a single place, and I think that also has had an influence. Of course, it's, we're not just talking about private museums as spaces that are run by individuals or, or donated by individuals. There are corporations that are opening private museums now, aren't there? Yes, and it, it was a question of whether I should include corporate museums, but some of them are so important and so amazing, you know, with beautiful buildings, that I really felt that it was important to, to note them as well. Of course, their aims are quite often quite different. There's a very interesting quote in the book that a big company, a big luxury goods company, because it's very often luxury goods company, their museum has to be of very high quality because it's got to reflect that brand. It is also a way of promoting the brand. And so if the brand is a high-end luxury good, then the museum must be high-end luxury good as well. And the same person also went on to say, remember that if they're in the fashion industry, for example, they only really get publicity and focus during fashion shows. Whereas if they have a beautiful high-end museum, then 365 days of the year, that is in front of the public. So it is a way, in that case, of promoting the brand, no doubt. That's really interesting. I wanted to talk a bit more about sort of corporations and retail, in fact, because there's this really interesting notion discussed in the book, which is this what's called a cultural retail concept. And often these these are galleries that are actually within a mall, within a shopping mall. Of course, this has quite a long history, because if you go back to the 1980s in Japan, what they call departo in Japanese, which are department stores, all had their own art galleries, and you used to go in there. And uh, it's not a phenomenon that we're so used to in the West, but certainly in Asia, to have a museum in a shopping mall is actually quite frequent, and it's not quite as hard-nosed and commercial as that might sound, because In a lot of countries, there aren't that many places for middle-class people to go or even poorer people to go that are safe, air-conditioned, clean. And, of course, shopping malls are one of them. And this was something that was pointed out to me by a collector that I met. And he said, I wanted somewhere where families could go and that they could shop, but they could also enjoy art. And I think that the, the shopping mall concept is in many ways, a win-win because it gives somewhere to exhibit. And certainly in a place like India, where you have a very major collection that is shown in a shopping mall, it certainly gives more prominence to, to the artists who exhibit there. One of the things about this, of course, is that there are very large amounts of art that are selling not to traditional public museums, but to private individuals, and therefore they can create these 
museums. So tell me what you think that's doing in terms of art. Do you, you know, what effect is that having on the market to a degree, but also on our public museums? Yes, this is really one of the big problems, because the fact is that the enormous fortunes that we're seeing today, if you think that somebody like Elon Musk is worth hundreds of billions, they can afford to buy art, and art has become really a competitive sport at the very high end, uh, with billionaires outbidding each other, and they're completely shutting out public institutions. They just can't afford to buy these works of art which hit the headlines because of the prices they make and so the public wants to see them but they can't see them in public institutions because the public institutions just can't afford to buy them so that really is is to an extent a problem there but then on the other hand you might say well if the private museum owners build these museums and their public access which they are you may have to pay but then in most countries you do have to pay anyway what's the problem? You're seeing a beautiful building with a beautiful collection. Very often people say to me, oh, these expensive works of art, they're bought by billionaires and then they disappear forever. And this isn't so if they put up their own museum and put them on show. There is, though, another problem, is that does this mean that the choice of that very rich person showing his collection, does that mean that he's promoting those artists as he's chose? Um, And to an extent, he's setting the cultural agenda by saying these are the most important artists because they're the most expensive. And this is not what a public institution does. A public institution uh, has curators and can step back more from the market aspect. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, just because you own a private museum and you're um, making this big public gesture doesn't mean you're not still buying those works at auction or from galleries and you can't inflate the market for the artists that you're showing in your apparently public space. This can be a problem. I mean, this is something and there can be a suspicion that some private museum owners are using their private museums to enhance the reputation and the market value of the choices that they make. And they may be choices that are not really a function of their importance from the art history, the aesthetic point of view, but uh, their importance from uh, the possibility of boosting their value. One of the interesting quotes in the book is from a museum curator who talks about the numbers of visitors to the Grand Palais in Paris versus the visitors to the Fondation Louis Vuitton in Paris, which is this enormous Frank Gehry design building. It's, an, it's a very, very landmark space and they've got very museum quality shows, loan shows, not just the collection coming into the, to the space. So tell us about that, because that seems to me to be quite a crucial point. Yes, that that was somebody who in Paris noted it, but I think you probably find that it's a phenomenon elsewhere as well, that there isn't an infinite public that's going to go to these museums. And if you have a beautiful new opening uh, in a beautiful new private museum, it's probably going to drain some of the public away from the public institutions. But on the other hand, um, as I think the same person said to me, an exhibition like the one that's currently on at Vuitton the Morozov collection is something that he would never have been able to have gone to Russia to see. And so it is giving the public something amazing to see. So it sort of cuts both ways. It does add to the cultural environment. But at the same time, it rather undercuts public institutions. What's what's interesting, I think, is that 
you and I are arts professionals, so we have a kind of attachment to museums, perhaps. Mm. We've been working long enough in the industry to have a kind of division between the public and private world, and we always think of the public as a kind of generous, public-spirited um, mm. mm-hmm. uh, sort of sector. Um, but, of course, the, the visiting public just want to see good art, don't they? And therefore, does this matter to them? You know, should it matter to the public whether actually a great exhibition is happening in a private or public museum? I mean, you're quite right. I think the public doesn't really care. Um, They're happy to go to see a beautiful museum and they're happy, as in the case of of Vuitton, to see something amazing that they wouldn't be able to see otherwise and that a public institution wouldn't be able to put on. So in the case of Vuitton, there's really nothing to complain about. Um, But I think perhaps in other cases, it's more problematic because a private museum doesn't have the same agenda as a public institution. They don't have the curatorial, they don't do the research. Perhaps they'll put on one very popular exhibition, but beside it there might be a smaller, more focused exhibition, which is also important. So I think that the objectives of the two, of the public and the private, are different. The general public is perhaps not aware of that. There's also obviously this aspect of competition amongst private collectors, the most famous being Arnaud and Pinot, you know, these two French billionaires who are opening private museums, some of the most impressive of all of the private museums, you know, when one thinks of the Pinot museums in in Venice, for instance. And they are, to a certain extent, vanity projects, aren't they? Yes, they are vanity projects. But at the same time, you have to look and see what they're bringing the public. And for example, Pinot's recently opened museum, the Bourse du Commerce, is also amazing. It's an amazing building. He spent an absolute fortune redoing it, as indeed Vuitton did. So yes, they're vanity projects. But sometimes vanity projects in the past have turned into something kind of wonderful as well, like the Frick collection in New York. So I think it's very difficult to to figure out where this whole thing is going. And I think that that is possibly the biggest reproach that you could give to private museums is their sustainability and legacy. Ultimately, the question is, what will happen when the founders of these museums pass away? And I think one of the problems is that a lot of them are not set up to be sustainable. So what they've done is they've robbed audience and art from public institutions, and they themselves will turn out to be transient. And I think that is probably one of the, um, one of the bigger reproaches that you could make to private museums, having acknowledged all of the positive aspects that they bring to the table. Indeed. Now, China's a special case, isn't it? There are lots and lots of, of private museums in China. Well, China is a fascinating subject, and unfortunately, because of the pandemic, I wasn't able to continue um, my research is there. I had been a number of times, I'd visited a number of private museums. I was hoping to visit a number more, which I wasn't able to. But it's really an interesting topic because there are so many museums in China. China is playing catch-up, trying to catch up with the West. But they seem to have decided that for contemporary art, the best thing, since they don't have collections themselves, the best thing is to help to facilitate Uh, private collectors putting on their own museums but there's also a very big real estate aspect as well and this is this is very important a lot of real estate developers put museums in their developments in order to get some benefit from the government whether it's cheaper rent or zoning laws that are changed and so on and sometimes these museums once the development is completed turn out to be pretty well empty um 
one person who I read said that they are called mosquito museums because there's nothing but mosquitoes in them. So it's very difficult actually to quantify how many there are because they do tend to come and go. Quite a few have closed. Quite a few have just been allowed to become either mosquito museums or putting on local shows of, you know, art art societies. Um, but then on the other hand, there are some very good ones like Rockbund in Shanghai is an excellent private museum. The Lung museums, uh, which belong to a very rich couple, have also put on some amazing shows. So it's, as always with China, it's an immense country and it's very difficult to generalize. Well, it's certainly a fascinating subject. Georgina, thank you so much for telling us about it. Thank you for having me. The Rise and Rise of the Private Art Museum by Georgina Adam is published by Lund Humphreys and priced £19.99. Coming up, we discover the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures and look at two wonderful portraits by Piero di Cosimo. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. A long-raging legal battle over the rights to Frida Kahlo's legacy and image, which escalated in 2018 following the release of a Barbie doll made in the Mexican painter's likeness, has come to a close in the US after being dismissed in the US District Court for the Southern District of Florida, writes Wallace Ludell. When Carlo died in 1954, property rights passed to her niece, Isolda Pinedo Carlo. Her daughter, Maria Cristina Romeo Pinedo, obtained power of attorney over these rights in 2003. And in March 2018, the Frida Carlo Corporation, or FKC, which was formed in 2004 with the goal of commercialising the Frida Carlo brand, and of which Pinedo is a shareholder, filed a complaint claiming that Pinedo was illegally using Carlo's image and undermining the company. But according to court documents filed earlier this month, the defendants, Pinedo and her daughter, argued successfully that the case should not be fought in the US. Almost a decade after three members of the Russian art collective Pussy Riot were sentenced to two years in prison for performing their punk prayer in Moscow's Cathedral of Christ the Saviour, the feminist group is releasing an NFT based on their sentencing documents. As Annie Shaw reports, in the 2012 sentencing, the judge cited feminism as one of the reasons Pussy Riot should be removed from society due to its incompatibility with a number of religions. So, for the NFT, titled Virgin Mary, Please Become a Feminist, a line taken from punk prayer, the group has drawn the Virgin Mary in the shape of a vagina over a digital copy of the prison sentencing document. The NFT has been released on Super Rare with an initial reserve of more than 13 Ether or around $38,000 and proceeds will support Russian victims of domestic violence and political prisoners. And finally, as Catherine Hickley writes, the Kunsten Museum of Modern Art in Aalborg in Denmark has had an unexpected response when it lent 538,000 Danish kroner, or around $85,000, to the artist Jens Harning so that he could recreate two works for an exhibition. In 2011, Henning created an average Danish annual income, which featured kroner banknotes in a frame. That was a version of an earlier work, an average Austrian annual income. The museum asked Harning for both works for Work It Out, an exhibition that opened on the 24th September, but when the works were delivered to the museum, there were empty frames, according to the curator, Lassa Anderson. Hanning had decided it was more interesting to do a new conceptual work, and it was called Take the Money and Run. The museum's contract with Harning requires him to pay the money back by the 14th of January 2022, but Harning says the work is that I took the money and I will not give it back. You can read these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or our apps for iOS and Android, available from the App Store or Google Play. 
We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Through to the 19th of October, Christie's New York will host a series of live and online auctions dedicated to Classic Week. Engage with timeless and elegant pieces that date from antiquity to the 20th century and are selected from the antiquities, books and manuscripts, 19th century European art and old masters departments and from private collections such as that of the stylish Herbert Casper. Join Christie's as its Rockefeller Centre galleries transform into a veritable museum of extraordinary art. Find out more at christies.com. Welcome back. Now, after years of delays, the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures in Los Angeles opened to the public yesterday in a former department store building reconfigured by the architect Renzo Piano. Founded by the Academy of Motion Pictures and drawing on its vast collection, the $482 million museum features a terrace with sweeping views of the Hollywood Hills and celebrates movie magic in a vast range of exhibits. Yet the curators have sought to question and expand the traditional Hollywood narrative by highlighting some painful film industry stories and incorporating an international array of creators. Our former senior editor Nancy Kenny spoke with Doris Berger, the senior director for curatorial affairs at the museum, and Anna Santiago, an assistant curator about their planning and their vision. Let me start by asking, does it seem odd to you that it's only now, in 2021, that a museum devoted to film is opening in Los Angeles? It is odd and it is wonderful. It's oddly wonderful, I would say. (laughs) But um, a film museum was in the planning or in people's minds already since the late 1920s, actually. Mary Pickford already talked about it. It just took many, many decades, almost a century, (laughs) to get this museum going. But now is the time and we're really happy. Under the museum's first director, Carrie Brower, a plan had been developed for a permanent core exhibition that was called Where Dreams Are Made. Then after Bill Kramer took over in 2019, the title changed. Now it's called Stories of Cinema. Did that reflect a change in vision of any kind? Uh, Yes, different directors, different vision, of course. (laughs) And it would be strange if it wasn't that way, right? But also there's a continuity that we uh, we all have been working on. Anna and I have been with the museum over five years, both of us. So um, we are both quite aware um, of the various iterations that we've been working on. But what was always there is that we wanted to represent the past, present and possible futures of moving images. Our attempt was always to be international in scope and not just American focused. What was really shifting tremendously is our thinking about permanent exhibitions versus more nimble form of exhibition making and creating a structure that is more dynamic and allows us enhance stories of cinema in the plural form a structure that allows us to be not really chronological but create more dialogues between the past and the present of movies working on a more nimble exhibition is very exciting for us we can showcase different stories as doris mentioned and really showcase this idea of how movies and artists and era all evolve over time in cinema. I also understand that the core exhibition is a less celebratory view of Hollywood than had originally been planned. Is that the case? I think now it's both. It's celebratory and embracing the complexities 
of our culture, including the film industry. In particular, the film industry had also a lot of issues at play that reflect larger societal issues, obviously, about inequities. Uh, and racism, uh, to be frank, and discrimination. And so, yes, we are embracing this a bit more full-heartedly uh, in, in our present version. And uh, the reasons of them are manifold, right? Our culture has changed too. And we've, we are actually really happy that we are able to embrace the complexities as much as the positive and celebratory elements of cinema. So... Your core exhibition continues for three floors. What will visitors see when they first walk into the ground floor gallery? Yeah, so in our Sydney Poitier Grand Lobby, uh, one of the first exhibitions you'll see is in the Spielberg Family Gallery, and that is um, the first of the three floors of Stories of Cinema on the first floor. And you're kind of immediately immersed in this history of cinema. That's a 13-minute uh, montage. That's an installation of several screens highlighting the history of movies from 1895 with the Lumiere brothers to now. On the second floor, you're immediately thrown back into to everything. You walk through this introductory montage of uh, movies, again, that, you know, spans all of film history. And it's a three-screen installation that highlights particular visual elements of movie making. And you see some of these movies in the galleries that will continue throughout Stories of Cinema. And something that is a particular space that's really important and and shows basically what we're trying to get at is the significant movies and movie makers gallery. And that's one of the first things that you'll see on Stories of Cinema too. It's a series of six vignettes highlighting different filmmakers and movies from Real Women Have Curves to Citizen Kane to Bruce Lee. And you're kind of immediately already thrown into this film history and seeing how these different narratives work together and why they're important in film history. I've heard that inclusion was a major goal as you rethought the original approach to the core exhibition. Was this partly a reaction to Oscar So White, the movement calling attention to the shortage, and you know, sometimes the total absence of black Oscar nominees? To be very honest with you, we had this already in our minds before Oscar So White happened, but you know, controversies like this are useful in society, I feel and believe, and allow you to address issues on a larger inequities and discriminant practices, if you will, uh, on a larger scale. So um, we are happy those stories are being told, right? And, uh, and it allows us to create this platform where address issues of inclusion and diversity and equity more full-heartedly, fully as a society. Because after all, cinema and society, is re- they are related, right? I mean, cinema often reflects what's going on in the world and the other way around. Sometimes movies even inspire change. So we have both movements going on and filmmakers are in the middle of it, living in their own respective societies as well and reflect their experiences through their movies. So for us, um, Oscar So White is not the only story to tell, but it's an important one that inspired us to go further but beyond Oscar so White, I think we need to be even more inclusive and think about this more holistically and wider and in a more diverse sense, also thinking about accessibility, for example. Um, and so the story doesn't only stay with black and white, uh, but it 
embraces uh, a, a wider breadth of our society and everybody in it. After all, in movies, you want to be reflected. You want to see yourself in movies. And the more people we can inspire and engage with our uh, museum to see themselves, to be inspired by what they see, uh, the better of a job we have done, I think. Doris, tell me about some of the exhibits that examine painful or difficult truths or stories that were lost or are very little known. Well, let's start with the painful. We have different sections in the exhibition, Stories of Cinema, that relate to various crafts through completely different movies. And we have sections that are talk about acting and performance. We have sections that talk about costume design, hair and makeup. Um, and we have sections that talk about writing and cinematography and all the different crafts that make a movie. And so in some of the sections, when we felt like it makes sense to embrace its complexity in a deeper way um, and reflecting our histories honestly, we included complicated histories. For example, in Hair and Makeup, Anna, would you like to talk a little bit about that section? Yeah, so um, I worked on the Hair and Makeup section with uh, Dara Jaffe, another assistant curator, and something we wanted to tie into that gallery. I, I mean, there's Hair and Makeup's amazing. It's transformative. You see people become different creatures or different biographical people. Um, but there's also this complex history that Doris mentioned that we wanted to make sure we addressed in terms of a lot of whitewashed casting and makeup being used to allow for whitewashing of casting. So we have a makeup chart of Katherine Hepburn in Dragon Seed in which she was made to look Asian as well as various other Max Factor pancake makeups that have racially denoted names. And some of those particular makeup types, light Egyptian, were used for the character of Katherine Hepburn in Dragon Seed. Does the museum also examine the history of blackface in the movies? Yes, that that's definitely something that's addressed in this problematic history of makeup um, case where we, we do look at the history of blackface. And in addition of the history of blackface in the hair and makeup section, we also address blackface and the legacy of this horrible practice of blackface in animation as well, because it was not only applied to real people, um, but also to imaginary characters through animation. I hear that there's an exhibit devoted to Hattie McDaniel, who was the first black actor to win the Oscar back in 1939 for her role as Mammy in Gone with the Wind. I understand that this is presented in a special Oscars gallery? So yeah, Hedy McDonnell is included in two galleries, uh, in the Oscars gallery, as well as in the Academy Awards History Gallery. They're connected, they're two adjacent galleries. In the Oscars gallery, we highlight 20 significant Oscar winners, and she is one of the 20 significant winners as the first black person to ever win an Oscar for her role as Mammy in Gone with the Wind. We don't have her Oscar anymore, unfortunately. Um, it's lost to time. And so we decided to keep the vitrine empty and to create an honoring moment 
through its absence. But uh, we have uh, a story that tells you why we feel it's important to include her despite the absence of the object. And in the next gallery, you can actually hear her acceptance speech. Uh, from the Academy Awards um, ceremony, but you will also learn on a table that uh, writes up the history of the Academy Awards, you will also learn on that table that she was actually not allowed to go in the same entrance, to enter the same entrance of the Ambassador Hotel than all the other actors and actresses and other filmmakers. She was also not allowed to be able to sit at the same table than the cast and crew of uh, Gone with the Wind due to segregated practices, even in Los Angeles. And, and so you can hear her speech, and it's really a powerful speech she gave, but you also learn about the complexities and the challenges that she had to face as a Black person during that time. We also have Hattie McDaniel in the performance gallery. There's a letter that she wrote to gossip columnist Hedda Hopper addressing being typecast as a maid. The performance gallery is a gallery that highlights the art of casting and acting. And back in the studio era, which was about from the 1920s to the 1960s, basically all casting was typecasting, uh, negative or positive. Um, And that, of course, allowed for these more discriminatory practices in casting that she addresses in her own words. And to add to Hedda McDaniel's amazing performance, yet also as in a typecast role, right? Her performance was stellar. But she had to play a mammy uh, because at that time in the late 1930s and 40s in Hollywood, black actors were mostly cast as mammies, butlers, never as main protagonists, you know. So there is all these challenges that black actors had to face once they got a job. Very often they didn't even get an offering. But if they did, it was very often a stereotypical role. But the museum doesn't limit itself to Hollywood, does it? Are there exhibits devoted to independent films and movies from other countries? Yes, and um, about independent film, I would also want to add, and that fits very well to Hattie McDaniel's story, who worked in Hollywood, But there's an independent filmmaker who worked at the same time. Uh, His name is Oscar Michaud. He was an African-American independent filmmaker who was not able to work in Hollywood to do its segregation practices and exclusionary measures. He made his own films from 1919 on into the 1940s. He made over 40 films in his lifetime, and he was a writer, director, producer, and distributor of his own films. So we have a um, a vignette on Oscar Michaud in one of our galleries of the six significant movies and movie makers that we tell as well. So that's a beautiful story, I think, to add independent filmmaking, but also in an international approach, you ask as well, how do we branch out to the world? I mean, Anna, you created this beautiful montage on stories of cinema to talk about your approach of creating this and being inclusive in an international sense as well. Yeah, the intro montage that's an installation of of three screens really draws visual parallels between movies throughout film history, as I'd mentioned. But you see movies like from the French New Wave, like Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless alongside Jordan Peele's 2017 Get Out, and then movies like Close Up from 1990, the Iranian film, alongside Easy Rider from 1969. So they're all kind of various independent international movies where you see them visually tied together. 
You spoke at length about makeup. Are there also exhibits devoted to costumes or set design or special effects? Yes, we have a gallery uh, that is devoted. It's called Identity to Costume Design and Hair and Makeup. Um, we discussed hair and makeup a little bit, but costume design is also really instrumental in that gallery that shows the plethora of creating characters through costume design meaning from a costume design that relates to a person that has really lived, such as Frida Kahlo in Frida, to a costume design of a more daily outfit of a horror film in Us, you know, a coverall, for example, or to a very inventive way of thinking about costumes, such as in Midsommar, the May Queen dress, consisting of thousands of silk flowers, or the costume of the Wiz, uh, of the of Eveline uh, that Mabel King wore. It's an absolutely imaginative uh, costume with nooks and crannies and objects on the dress. It's beautiful to see in reality. Um, two costumes that relate more to um, historical imaginations, such as the gladiator or Cleopatra. Really fascinating to see that too, how costume design relates to historical research um, that the costume designers have done. In addition, we have one area in that gallery that focuses on one single costume designer as well, because we found it really fascinating to see also the breadth of the job of a costume designer, of one single costume designer. And that changes over time, right? When we open, we feature the costume designer, Mary Zoffries, and her amazing work from uh, designing the costumes for La La Land to Interstellar, you know? <laughs> In this core exhibition, do you have any absolute favorites? I have two favorite parts of exhibitions of it because they show the breadth of what we can do as a museum. One is the um, installation of Pedro Almodovar, who is a Spanish filmmaker whom we collaborated with on creating a very cinematic exploration of his universe as a filmmaker. He created 12 different screens and montages for us that give you a sense of his thinking, of his preferences, of his style and flavor, if you will. And that is an absolutely beautifully large-scale cinematic experience uh, that you wander through as a visitor. And the second exhibition is a temporary exhibition it's called Backdrop and Invisible Art, and that highlights production design, in particular backdrop paintings and the history of Hollywood backdrop paintings that are actually invisible. If you don't see them, they're great paintings, obviously, in the movie, but also they are really interesting paintings in themselves. They really exercise the crafts of large-scale painting techniques. And so we have uh, the painting of North by Northwest from 1959 on display, one huge 30-foot-high painting in one of the galleries. But you also, and that's what I love about it, we also were able to tell you more about the history of that technology, of uh, painting methodology, but at the same time also dive into the cultural history of it. Because... What you see in North by Northwest, uh, the painting that we have on display is um, Mount Rushmore. And Mount Rushmore is, a, on the one hand, a national monument to some, but to others, it's really a desecration of the land. It used to be called Black Hills, and uh, for the Lakota community and other indigenous communities, 
it's a very sad story to have the hills carved out with white men's presidents' faces. And so we include that cultural history as well into the larger history of uh, film technology, which I think shows very well our approach at the museum overall, that we are starting from cinema, we are talking about cinema, but also we are talking about its connection to culture and people. How about you, Anna? Do you have any favorites to point out? I'm a big fan of the Path to Cinema, which is an exhibition that I worked on with exhibitions curator Jessica Niebel. And in that exhibition, it's fully called the Path to Cinema Highlights from the Richard Balzer Collection. And it's from this collection of Richard Balzer, who had a passion for pre-cinema and early storytelling. And so the idea behind this exhibition is that cinema really wasn't born into a void. There's a long history of technology and visual devices that were used for storytelling, like zoetropes or magic lanterns. And basically a lot of these elements that we see in movies came before movies, like projection with shadows or magic lanterns, or this idea of the illusion of movement that we see with devices like a zoetrope or a tomatrope. I understand that the first temporary exhibition is devoted to the Japanese animator Hayao Miyazaki. How did you settle on that choice? Well, that was a choice that relates also to us being international. I think that was a key moment of our decision making. We wanted to highlight a filmmaker that is well known to many, but maybe not to everybody as much as we would want to. So um, Studio Ghibli Films and Hayao Miyazaki, who co-founded Studio Ghibli, is an animator who has had over a 50-year-long career already. So there's a substantial body of work. And um, the curators for that exhibition, Jessica Niebel and Raoul Guzman, developed a close relationship with Studio Ghibli in Japan. And it's indeed the first time ever in the Americas that you can see original objects um, such as background drawings, cells from the films, along with beautiful montages and spatial experiences that the curators have created with the designers that allow you to immerse yourself into the world of Hayao Miyazaki, but also learn about his process. I think that's really important also to learn more about animation, such an intricate filmmaking practice that really starts with imagination. Everything has to be imagined in an animation film. There's nothing already there. (laughs) So Hayao Miyazaki is a master in that. And uh, the way he co-formed his studio in Japan is testimony to also independent studio practice, which we found appealing. So many reasons to embrace international filmmaking, to embrace animation as a major art form for filmmaking, and to create an exhibition that is educational, but also fun and immersive at the same time were many of our facets for that decision-making. Have you mapped out any other temporary exhibitions for the future? Oh yeah, lots. (laughs) The next one after Hayao Miyazaki exhibition is more of a survey exhibition called Regeneration Black Cinema 1898-1971. Um, Very different scope. Uh, It's more a scholarly uh, exploration of 
lost, hidden, forgotten films, um, independent and Hollywood films alike, and the participation of black filmmakers in particular. I understand that the museum has two theaters. What programming do you have planned? Will there be film series, maybe, devoted to specific directors? Yes, of course, of course. The theaters are also our heart, right? <laughs> the exhibitions are the areas Anne and I are working on, but in a way, the theaters are really the heart of cinema. So uh, we have two wonderful theaters. One is the David Geffen Theater, which has a thousand seats and is equipped with Dolby Atmos sound, as well as um, projection qualities where we can show, of course, um, digital protection, but we are really excited about, of course, 35 millimeter, 70 millimeter protection possibilities, as well as nitrate protection possibilities in that cinema. And then a second cinema, Anna, do you want to explain the Ted Mann Theater? So the Ted Mann Theater is a little smaller. Um, it's a 288 seat theater that uh, is equipped to do digital projection, as well as 35 millimeter. So our programming team has been planning for daily screenings. There'll be Saturday morning matinees for families. There's retrospectives that they're planning, such as Miyazaki in honor of the temporary exhibition. One of our first few screenings will be on The Wizard of Oz um, with a live accompaniment, um, as well as a 70 millimeter print of Malcolm X. It sounds like there's a lot to explore here. Thanks so much for joining us, Doris and Anna. Thank you. Thank you. The Academy Museum of Motion Pictures is open now, and you can find out more at academymuseum.org. And finally, it's time for this episode's Work of the Week. Today, the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam opens Remember Me, a remarkable show featuring more than 100 portrait masterpieces by artists including Holbein, Dürer, Memling, Petrus Christus and Veronese from around 50 international museums, galleries and private collections. The show is curated by Matthias Ubel and for the Work of the Week, he's chosen to talk about Piero de Cosimo's portraits of the architect Giuliano de Sangallo and his father Francesco Giamberti, made around 1482 to 1485. You can see an image of the paintings on our website, click on the podcast tab and look for this episode. Matthias, uh, before we talk about this specific work, tell me about the show because it seems like an extraordinary collection of portraits. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's about portraits uh, from the Renaissance made in Europe roughly between 1470 and 1570. And we have more than 100 works. And uh, yeah, it's incredible that we could all get these loans uh, especially during these difficult times. Yeah. I mean, it, it, obviously, one of the big concerns about, about lending these works is that, on the one hand, they're prized possessions that barely ever leave these institutions. And obviously, they're difficult in terms of restoration, in terms of the safety of the work. So you must have had to make all sorts of guarantees that they were going to be perfectly looked after. Yes, of course. <laughs> we do that all the time with all the artworks in our museum, of course. But yes, it was a preparation of almost four or five years, together with my colleague, Sarah von Dijk, and uh, also Friso Lamerce. So, yeah, we had a lot of uh, work put into getting all these uh, loans to Amsterdam. Wonderful. Now, um, we're going to talk about works right at the start of that spectrum that you talked about, so from the 1480s by Piero di Cosimo. Tell me, it's a a pendant pair of, of portraits. Tell me about those. Yeah, that's true. Actually, it wasn't 
planned as a pendant pair. To start with, it's a portrait of Giuliano de Sangallo with his father. Uh, that's the second portrait. His father, it's the second portrait. And uh, first, it was only uh, Giuliano's portrait. But then uh, uh, his father died and Giuliano uh, must have asked Piero di Cosimo to paint also a portrait of his uh, father for remembrance, of course. Mm -hmm. And then the two were joined together, very likely. We don't have the original frame anymore, unfortunately, but uh, we are very convinced that they must have been pendants yeah, joined together in, in one frame. That's amazing. Tell us about the, the subject. So this is a distinguished architect. And, and what was Piero di Cosimo doing at that time? Was he, was he working for a court or was he independently working? He worked on, on smaller projects, but in, in uh, 1483. So we don't know exactly when the paintings were made, but then he, he became a, a major architect. And, and, and later he also uh, worked for uh, the Medici's, of course. Mm -hmm. What's so interesting about this portrait or both portraits, actually, that they are very early examples uh, showing the profession of the sitter. So the compasses lying uh, in front of Giuliano, showing him as an architect. So this is a very uh, early example of that. That's great, because it's extraordinarily detailed, isn't it? And so, you, as you say, you've got these compasses in front of him. He looks very distinguished. He, yes. of course, is looking out of the frame with this glorious landscape yes. behind him. But there's this, there's this sort of trompe l'oeil uh, ledge at the yes. front of the picture, isn't there? Yes, yeah. It's a, it's a ledge, and it's covered with a textile with a pattern on it. And um, actually, that also gave the hint that his painting portrait was uh, painted first, because the pattern was um, arranged in a different direction firstly and uh, through research we found out that the pattern had been changed to and be adjusted to the pattern uh, which we also see on um, uh, Francesco's portrait. Oh how interesting and so so tell us about that second portrait then because his father had passed away so yes. it's made it's a posthumous portrait. It's a posthumous so how, portrait so... and that's very interesting um, well if you stand in front of the portrait so Giuliano is portrait in three-quarter profile, as we call that. So a little bit uh, tilted to, to the left. And his father is uh, portrait in uh, profile, as we know from uh, Roman coins, for example. And um, it's, well, very, very likely that this portrait is painted uh, after a death mask. So at that time, there were uh, many death marks made from gypsum in the houses present in, in Florence. And that's also why uh, the ear of Francesco is folded uh, down. Yes, it's folded over. So it appears that the sort of turban that he's wearing is pushing the ear down. Well, I think Piero used the hat to make us think so, because uh, the push-down ear comes from making the death mask. So the face was covered uh, in gypsum and it was bound to, to keep it all together and keep the gypsum onto the face and you have it very often or almost always with the death mask that the ear is you know, folded down and, and also the cheeks are uh, fallen in so the, the appearance of his father is that after he had died and coming from a death mask. 
Would families have kept these death masks of their relatives? Was it commonplace yes, uh, to yeah. keep them around? Yeah, yeah Vasari tells us that there were uh, many, many, many of them throughout the houses. Uh, That's amazing. And um, one of the things, of course, about these extraordinary portraits is that exquisite attention to detail. Can you give us some highlights of some of the, the very, very fine detail in the portraits? Very interestingly, the attributes which are lying on the uh, windowsill or parapet in front of Francesco is sheet music. So because he also was, uh, he was also an architect, but he was also a, a musician. And in the background, really, really tiny, you, you need like a microscope almost. We have a beautiful uh, landscape uh, across both portraits, uh, ongoing landscape. And to the very right, there is a small church and uh, um, a mass is going on ah. outside the church. And they're standing uh, a portable organ. And behind the organ is a really tiny, tiny, tiny figure playing the organ, wearing a red hat. Oh, extraordinary. The same, or probably the same, I mean, it's so tiny, but it's a red hat. And Francesco, in his portrait, wears a, a red hat. So it must actually be Francesco playing the organ at a mass in front of that uh, church in this tiny, tiny background detail. So it's really amazing. One of the things I was really struck by looking at the portraits was that was the hair, both of the sitters' hair. Yes. Uh, it's really in extraordinary fine detail. So over that red hat that you talked about, yes. the hair sort of um, uh, it, it almost almost windswept over the hair of Francesco. Yeah, and, 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 and the grey hair is so yeah, it's so convincing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and then Giuliano's hair is much longer, isn't it? Yes. And so you have his hair sort of again, sort of falling on his shoulders. And there's one one lock of hair over the over the top of the landscape. And so there's this wonderful sense of, of scale, isn't there, yes. between foreground and background? Yeah, that's that's wonderful. And uh, also the time when the two uh, portraits have been painted, northern portraiture kicked off in Italy. So the three quarter profile of Giuliano, that's a typical. A northern portrait form, whereas the profile form is a typical Italian form. And also the panoramic landscape is typically uh, northern, probably coming to Italy via Hans Memling uh, around the 1470s, 60s, 70s. Yeah, it's an, a wonderful ex example of an art history example. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that would be one of the main arguments of the show, because one of the kind of almost like myths of the Renaissance is that Italy was the crucible for everything somehow. And, 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 and still the Italian Renaissance almost supersedes the Northern Renaissance in terms of the imagination of what that period meant, doesn't yes. it? And yeah. is that an intention of the show to kind of illustrate just how much toing and froing there was between those two schools? Not, not only, but for us, it's really important to, to see that there is this, as you say, that Toing and throwing, you know, the exchange within Europe. So many artists traveled and artists were keen on seeing new innovations. Uh, so, as I said, Memling uh, was very much appreciated in Italy. But then in the 16th century, many painters uh, were also appreciated from northern, uh, uh, by, by northern colleagues. So uh, there was a lot of exchange going on. And also, for example, we have several portraits by uh, the Harlem painter Martin van Heemskerk. And in 1532, he, for example, he went to Rome and he stayed there several years and he brought back all these ideas of antiquity and drawings of antiquity and, and integrated into his own art. Of course, that's uh, later than the Piero di Cosimo's, but 
they traveled a lot and saw many things. That's great. And one thing I wanted to ask was about that music, because I know that people have gone into that detail in that Hieronymus Bosch, where, where there's some music on one of the figures naked bottom, and, <laughs> and worked out the tune. So has anybody has anybody worked out whether this is playable music in front of Francesco in this image? Yes, I think so. It's it's playable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my uh, colleague, he wrote an article on, on the two paintings. And in his article, he had transcribe the the music so it's playable yeah how wonderful so uh, in this show um would you say that there are particular arguments that are new the new forms of research that you want to um that you want to get across to the public because obviously yes it's a wonderful collection of portrait but what's it what's its message if you like to your visitors well the message is that portraits are to realize portraits have been made for uh very very important purpose and that's uh, remembrance memory and that hasn't changed so much if i dare say uh, also today uh, we take i don't want to make this comparison too often but we take many photographs of ourselves uh, but also friends celebrities uh, and there's one reason to remember to, to remember every uh, moment in our life and back then of course uh, people also had the yeah the the wish to remember uh, their loved ones or, or absentees or or deceased ones so and um, this is the main message and within this message we we look at uh, how people wanted to to be uh, perceived and what image they wanted to uh, give them uh, of themselves so for example a powerful image or a pious image an ambitious image and so on. So that is the, the main thread uh, in our exhibition. And would the point, therefore, of Piero's portraits be that, that Giuliano was saying, I am in this distinguished tradition of my father, and therefore I, you know, carrying his, his great works forward into the future, as it were? I think so. I think so. And also, the two portraits uh, immortalize both of them while Giuliano is still living, and it's also remembrance of his father and the profession of his father or the professions. So music. And uh, Francesco was also an architect. Uh, we see also many buildings in the background. Perhaps this is also an allusion to, to his father's work. And then, of course, Giuliano himself being a proud, very much appreciated architect we see with the compasses in front of his uh, portrait. So... Yeah, it's also a bit of vanity, of course. Of course. <laughs> of course, but every portrait is that. I mean, everybody who takes a selfie, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it has all to do with vanity, of course. But, uh, uh, and that hasn't changed that much. Well, Matthias, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. Remember Me is at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam until the 16th of January next year. 
that's all for this episode. You can subscribe to the art newspaper on the website. Just click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. Do subscribe to this podcast and a brush with. And please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julie Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David is also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Henrietta Bentel and Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Georgina, Nancy Doris and Anna and Matthias. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.